This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Thank you, my brother. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that as we open the word of the Lord, that you would be gracious to us, that your word and your truth would touch our hearts, that the spirit would move within us in the word of God. Thank you for these wonderful truths. We pray in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> this is a long portion of scripture, isn't it? It's what I've been assigned, and so by the grace of God, I'm going to try to expound it and uncover it. And uh, I thought a good way to start this would be with a bang-up illustration, because here at this seminary, you know that pragmatism and relevance are taught constantly, right? I mean, we're all about being pragmatic and reaching our culture, and we're all about being relevant, right? So since all these pastors these days are doing these really interesting, unique, bang-up illustrations, like you know, catapulting into their sanctuary or bringing up a goat or a lamb on the stage. I thought I'd do something like that today to really spice things up here at our seminary. So uh, what I did, since we're talking about the woman with the perfume, I brought a bottle of perfume. And uh, what I'd like to do is get Dr. Holmes to come up here on the stage. And uh, I'd like uh, Jack Cleveland to break this bottle over Dr. Holmes' head. And uh, it's... It's Calvin Klein, not John Calvin. Please note that. <laughs> Break that over Dr. Holmes' head, and then it would be good if Dr. Atterbury could come up here and uh, wash Dr. Holmes' feet with his hair. Don't you think that would be a good, a good illustration to start off this sermon today? Well, maybe not. Of course, I'm joking with levity, but, uh, you know, when you come to a passage like this, you don't need gimmicks, do you? And you don't have to be pragmatic and you don't have to be relevant. The word is relevant. And there's enough here to keep us busy as we talk about Jesus being the suffering servant. Now, you look at Mark's gospel. And most scholars would tell you what Mark's purpose in writing is, is that he wants to show us how Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the one who has come to serve us, suffer for us, so that we might be saved. And in Mark chapter 14, you have all these vignettes of the week leading up to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And these vignettes that Mark gives us, they're not chronological. In fact, what you're going to see, they're out of order. But each of these vignettes, I think, show us how Jesus was a true servant for you and I. And how he prepared himself by the grace of God to suffer for us. 
So today, I just want you to see, if you will, six ways Jesus prepared himself by the grace of God to be our suffering servant. And you see these six ways laid out in Mark chapter 14. The six ways are simply this. He was prepared to be our suffering servant, first of all, because God the Father ordained him. We're going to see that ordination in verses 1 through 2. Secondly, not only do we see God the Father ordained him, but Mary prepared him. We're going to see her preparation in verses 3 through 9. Thirdly, Judas betrays Christ. This is not a surprise. It's divinely ordained and known about. We're going to see that in verses 10 through verses 21. Fourthly, the Passover is going to proclaim the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim what he's about to do. And it's going to transform the Passover forever in verses 22 until verses 25. Fifthly, we see that Peter denies him. And finally, the Father anoints him. And we said that anointing in verses 32 to verse 36. All of these things, God ordaining him, Mary preparing him, Judas betraying him, the Passover proclaiming him, Peter denying him, the Father ordaining him, was preparation for the greatest moment in the earthly life of Jesus Christ, and that was the cross, the center of redemption history. So I want us to look at that preparation of our servant, our suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who prepared himself so that you and I might live and be saved. Let's look at the first thing, and that is that God ordained him. Look at Mark chapter 14. God purposed from the very beginning that this particular Passover would be the Passover where Christ would suffer and die. We know this because Daniel 9, 25, and 26 of the Old Testament talks about this particular Passover. Notice in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, <clears throat> it says it was now two days before Passover. That means it was Wednesday of the Passover week. Jesus had already said in Matthew 26, 2, that after two days of the Passover is coming, and then the Son of Man will be handed over to the crucifixion. Christ knew from the beginning that this Passover on this week, even the day when the lambs were being slaughtered and slain, that the perfect Lamb of God would be offered up on the cross, spotless, but given for us. And so... As we begin this chapter, immediately we see that God is in control. He's got this plan. This is the will of God that this particular Passover is the Passover Jesus knew he was going to the cross. But it tells us that even though God had ordained this and Jesus knew that he was going to the cross on this Passover and this Feast of Unleavened Bread, that there in verse 1 there were chief priests and there were scribes. And they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. How interesting. Now the chief priests were the, the Sadducees and the scribes were the Pharisees. And very often these two groups did not work together. But on this occasion, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees had come together and they were seeking a way to kill Jesus. Now the beauty of this is, is because God had ordained this Passover 
and had ordained that Jesus would be crucified while the lambs were being slaughtered at the temple, God knew that the timing was going to be precise, but man did not. Man wanted to kill Jesus. But what does Jesus tell us repeatedly? That he is laying down his life. Nobody is taking it from him. He is going to lay it down and give it voluntarily. So why don't they just rush and kill him? Well, for one reason, it wasn't God's timing yet. But God had also placed the timing perfectly. Notice verse 2. For they, the Sadducees and Pharisees, said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, you know, the Passover was one of the celebrated feasts of Israel. It and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread were kind of seen together. And during the Passover, there would be people that would come from all over, particularly Galileans who were known for their rowdiness. And they would come together remembering their slavery in Egypt, remembering how they were not free. It was a very emotional time for Israel. So these scribes and Pharisees who were afraid of Christ, they were afraid of him ruining their position, their wealth, their money. They wanted to get rid of it. But they knew that they couldn't just rush in and get rid of him because of the timing. It was going to have to be after Passover. Otherwise, the emotion of the crowds, the anger, the Galileans that were present, it would cause an uproar. It could potentially upset things. And so all of this, though, just shows how God had ordained it. He had ordained a specific place, a specific time, a specific moment for the Son of Man to be delivered up and to be given on the cross for our sins. This was God's ordained plan. But notice number two. Not only had God ordained this moment. But now we go back in verse three. And we actually go back six days before Wednesday. Uh, this is what makes Mark chapter 14 so difficult sometimes. Again, it's vignettes. It's pictures in the wall of the crucifixion. So it's not in chronological order. But you go to verse three. And you're now going backwards about a week. And it says, while he was at Bethany, that would have been about two miles from the city of Jerusalem, he was at the house of Simon the leper. And we're told in John chapter 12, verse 2, that Simon had also invited Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, and also Mary and Martha were at this meal. Can you imagine this moment when you have Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead? You have Simon, who was called the leper. He more than likely, well, had to be healed because he couldn't have had people in his home enjoying a meal had he also not been healed. So imagine the setting of this moment. It's about a week before the cross. Jesus is meeting about two miles outside of Jerusalem with a leper that he has healed and a man that he has raised from the dead. Can you imagine the conversation? that was going on at this dinner as these men sat around and these women sat around and they enjoyed fellowship with the Savior. As he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard. Now we know from John 12, verse 3, John tells us the name of this woman. Her name is Mary. It's the same Mary that's the sister of Martha. And we've all heard of the story of Mary and Martha. One was busy working and the other was attentive to Jesus. Mary is the attentive one. She's the one that's been focused on Christ. Her brother is sitting there at the table with Christ and Simon and 
Martha, and Mary comes with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard. Now, what is nard? It doesn't sound lovely, does it? In fact, it sounds horrible, but nard is actually from a plant in northern India. And uh, this, this nard that she would have had in this alabaster flask would have more than likely been an, an heirloom from her family. It would have been a very beautiful perfume. And the scripture even tells us that it was undiluted. It was very costly, but it was undiluted. Um, and it says so later in the text that it was pure nard, which meant that nothing was added to it. So here she had this very costly perfume from northern India. Now, most uh, scholars would say the very costly there, especially uh, based on what Judas says later about the denarii, would have cost about twenty-five to $30,000, okay? This alabaster flask was about a $30,000 flask of pure, unadulterated, nard perfume. That is an expensive family heirloom. But what does this Mary do with this very costly heirloom? Well, the scripture says in verse um, 3 that she broke it. She broke the flask and she poured it over his head. More than likely, this alabaster flask would have been large at the bottom and it would have had a small glass tube at the top. She would have broken that and without hesitation, uh, she broke it so that it wouldn't just drip. It would be poured on the head of Jesus Christ. And she let that ointment go down onto his head, pouring it over him. Now, verse 4 tells us there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was about a day's wage, so that would have been about a year's wages. So that would compute if we think about what's the average wage in the U.S. It's about twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars today. So this person, we're told in John, was identified as Judas, this one who said to themselves indignantly, "Why was this ointment wasted?" Because Judas was thinking, "That's a lot of money," and it was a lot of money. That's thirty thousand dollars. Now we know from other portions of the Gospels that Judas was taking money out of the money bags. So he had two motives here. I mean, his first motive was selfish and sinful, and he was probably thinking, $30,000, I could buy a lot of camels with that or whatever we buy here in Jerusalem. And I could put a lot of that money in my pocket and really enjoy that. Oh, that woman, she's wasted something that we could have used. But outwardly, even though internally Judas had this desire to probably take some of the money himself, outwardly it was very customary during the Passover to give an offering to the poor. And so to look good, Judas scolded this woman. He obviously led others who were there at the table to also scold her. And he says, why was the ointment wasted? It could have been sold and could have been given to the poor. That customary giving to the poor that would have been done at the Passover. And so the text tells us there in verse 5, they scolded her. So Judas convinced others at the table to also agree with him and say, yes, why have you done this? Why have you wasted this money? But notice in verse 6, Jesus defends her. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, they scold her. 
They see no practicality in what she has just done. And Jesus instead defends her. And he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You know, so often I think that in our worship we forget that, number one, motive is always most important to God. I mean, I think I can say that confidently. When I read the Old Testament over and over again, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. Um, you know, the motive of our heart is better than what our lips say. And what God is most interested in so often is why we're doing what we are doing. What you see here in this act of Mary, it wasn't very practical. It wasn't very logical. But it was beautiful to the Lord Jesus. It was preparing Him. It was blessing Him for what He had to endure that was about to approach. And we know that it was preparing Him because when we go down to the bottom of verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, Christ knew that she was preparing Him. She was blessing Him. She was moved in her spirit to do this one thing for the Lord Jesus. Here Mary had always been attentive to Jesus. She had always focused on Jesus. She had sat at His feet. And now she was obviously attentive to the fact that He was about to go to the cross. While so many of His disciples were not catching on to that fact. While so many of His disciples deserted Him later in the week. And even at the resurrection did not seem to believe that He was rising again. This is one person who did seem to be clued into the fact that Jesus is about to die. What he has told us is about to come to pass. And I love him and this is not practical, but the motive of my heart is to worship him with joy. John Calvin said, She was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. You know, sometimes we... Don't listen to the Spirit prompting us to just joyfully worship the Lord out of the motive of our heart. We're too worried about what other people will think. We're too worried about the practicality of the matter. What Calvin is saying, what the Scripture is saying here is sometimes we don't need to worry about that. If the Spirit is prompting us to go to someone and speak a word of love, we need to go to someone and speak a word of love. If the Spirit is prompting us to give, we need to give. If the Spirit is prompting us to do something in the name of Jesus and the motive of our heart is worship out of a love for God and a love for Christ, we're to do it and we're to do it joyfully and we're not to worry about all the details. Well, the details were being worried about by those in the room, but not by Mary. She was moved by the Spirit. She was moved with her motives. She had affection. And what you have here is a demonstration of a life that was touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. She wanted to worship her Savior before he went to the cross, bless him, and minister to him. So here, number two, you just have Mary preparing him. What's the next vignette that we see? Well, we see thirdly, Judas betraying him. It says um, in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad 
and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's why this was obviously days before the Passover. Judas is now going to be looking throughout the week for an opportunity to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Now his name Iscariot gives way to who he really is. He is the only one of um, the, the twelve who is not from Galilee. In fact, um, Iscariot notifies that he was from a place about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. He was non-Galilean. He was one of the twelve. And all along, he was one who was with them, but not with them. You know, he had the outward appearance of allegiance to Christ, but inwardly, all he really cared about was what he could get out of the Savior and how the Savior could benefit his personal life and how the Savior could benefit Israel's life politically. And so when Judas is understanding this is not the mission and the ministry of the Savior, instead, he's a suffering servant, Judas leaves seeking to betray the Lord Jesus. And for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, he is bought. He is bought as a slave, and he begins looking for that opportunity to betray Jesus. As we move into verse 12, we see that betrayal of Judas is being thwarted. Again, Christ is fully aware of this betrayal. He is fully aware that Judas is looking for the opportunity to get in on where they're going to be. And so you have this kind of cloak and dagger going on in verse 12 about the Passover. And there's a reason. Now we move from the Saturday before to Thursday. It is now Thursday before the Passover and before the crucifixion. So we've gone Wednesday at the beginning of chapter 14, Saturday in verse 3 to verse um, 11. And now we're at Thursday. Bear with me. The next vignette uh, that we see, this is still under Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, we learn in the other gospels, Peter and John, and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, this was a code. Jesus did not tell Peter and John where to go. But the Lord had prepared a place for the Passover to be celebrated. This is really important because Jesus wants to celebrate the last Passover with his disciples. He's going to transform the Passover, as we'll see in a moment. The old covenant is about to pass away, and the new covenant is going to completely transform the meaning of the Passover. So Christ has a place where he's going to set it up. Now, how Christ set it up, we're not told. He could have done it supernaturally and laid upon this man's heart to prepare a room, or he could have spoken with the man beforehand, Whoever this man was, he was obviously a follower of Christ. But the code is this. Go into the city and you will see a man carrying a jar of water. <clears throat> now that might not seem like much of a code to us. But that would have been an obviously odd sight to see. A man carrying a jar of water, that was a domestic task that a woman only would have performed. 
In fact, men that day, if they were carrying water, they would have carried it in wineskins, not in a jar. That would have been the job of a lady or a servant or someone menial. But they were to look for a man who was well-to-do, who would have been carrying this jar of water. That was their code. Christ didn't tell them where to go. Christ didn't tell them what building, what place. Why did he not tell them? Because had he told them, what would Judas have done? He would have gone and alerted the chief priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees. He would have told them, this is where the master is going to be. This is where he's going to be in private. You can get him. You can, you can attain him in stealth. And you can kill him. Jesus knew this. It was not yet his time. It was not the ordained moment of the Father for the Son to be delivered over into the hands of men. And so Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. You go look for this man with the jar. And wherever he tells you to go, that's where you go. That's where you set it up. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and they went to the city and they found it just as he told them. And they prepared the, fast, the Passover. Verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating... Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So Jesus brings the rest of the disciples to this upper room, and uh, the Passover has been set. And Jesus quotes Psalm 41 here in verse 18. It's really interesting. He quotes the psalm that David wrote about Ahithophel. I don't know if you remember the story of Ahithophel, but when David's son Absalom brought rebellion to the kingdom in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. Ahithophel was one of David's counselors, advisors, and he betrayed King David, and he took the side of David's son Absalom. He was a traitor. Isn't it interesting, Jesus quotes Psalm 41 here when he says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. In the ancient world, when it was David's day as well as Christ, eating with someone was a sign of intimacy and trust and blessing. To eat in someone's home was a privileged act. To betray the one who invited you to the table was an even more heinous act. And it showed how great the, the rebellion was, how great um, the, uh, the evil was. So here Christ quotes this psalm about Ahithophel who betrayed David. And he's quoting it referring to Judas. Now this is really interesting what's happening because in the other Gospels we're told that as Jesus reclined at the table, verse 18, Judas was to his left, Jesus in the middle, John to the right. The way they would have been reclining, they would have laid on the floor, elbows, their heads would have been close together. And so some of the conversation that Jesus has with Judas at this Passover meal is done privately, not publicly. When Jesus tells Judas, <clears throat> do what you must, some who overheard it probably thought they were referring to finances, but Jesus is able to have some intimate conversation with Judas. When he quotes this Psalm 41, R. Kent Hughes says that he believes Jesus is offering Judas a way of repentance before this ever happens. Now, I don't know if I agree with that, but I'll read R. Kent Hughes' quote. It's an interesting quote. He says, Jesus' offer to Judas here was genuine. 
If Judas had repented, he would have remained among the twelve, though Jesus would have gone to his death anyway. What you actually see here is it does appear that Jesus is kind of making a plea to Judas. He's quoting that psalm and he's saying to Judas, you remember Ahithophel, don't you? The one who was in David's inner court. You remember how it ended for Ahithophel? He hung himself. Judas, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go down this road. You don't have to hang yourself. You don't have to end like this. Uh, we're also told that Christ says the one who dips his bread in the cup with me is the one who will betray me. We're told in Ruth chapter 2 verse 14 that the dipping of the bread in the dish was a, a sign of, of peace and friendship. And so it's almost as if Christ is saying using Psalm 41 and using Ruth chapter 2 verse 14, he's saying to Judas, do you not see the connection here? Be at peace with me. Don't end up like Ahithophel. Do not hang yourself. Repent before it's too late. But we know that that doesn't happen. And so, Jesus says, one will betray me. Woe to that man who betrays me. It would have been better if that man had not been born. It was as if Jesus were reaching out to Judas. But Judas' role is to be one who will betray and deliver up the Son to be our suffering servant. Well, next we go on and we see the fourth thing. We've seen how God has ordained Christ for this moment, how Mary has prepared him, how Judas has betrayed him. Now we're going to see how the Passover proclaims Christ, how he proclaims Christ through the Passover. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take this, take, this is my body. It's interesting, Christ transformed the elements of the Passover. You remember that the Passover bread and the Passover wine were meant to symbolize what happened to Israel in, in Exodus, where the blood was splattered on the doorpost and the bread was unleavened because of their hasty exit out of Egypt. But Jesus here takes that unleavened bread. Unleavened was meant to signify um, holiness and separation from the world. And Jesus takes that bread that signifies holiness and separation from the world, and he transforms it at this very moment and says, this is now my body. So what used to represent an exodus from Egypt no longer represents an exodus from Egypt. It now represents my body. In this very moment, Jesus is ending the old covenant and beginning the new. He does the very same thing with the drink. He gives thanks, they drink it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What used to represent lambs in Egypt is now representing the blood of Jesus Christ. And how fitting, because all covenants had to be ratified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission, there was no covenant. And so here, Jesus is saying, this, this juice represents what I'm about to do. On the cross, it represents the shedding of my blood to inaugurate this covenant. And so they celebrated what was about to happen. They drank. And Jesus says, I say to you, you'll not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Eternal redemption from the power and the penalty of sin was given and was about to be given. And the Passover was proclaiming how Jesus 
was going to be our suffering servant. Let me go to the next thing, number five. And I'm moving through this quickly. I mean, you realize these are like ten pericopes that could be ten-week sermons. That's why I told you they gave me um, a goat to swallow, all right? No, a horse to swallow here. So we're choking on the goat, but we're going to get through this, all right? Um, so then you go to Peter's denial, verse 26. Peter denied it, and this was all part of the will of the Lord. It says, when they had sung a hymn, the Hallel, which is where we get our word hallelujah, the Hebrew word there, which was customary at the Passover. They would sing, eat. The Passover would last about five or six hours. Lots of food. Incidentally, isn't it too bad that Jesus didn't uh, tell us when he said, do this in remembrance of me about the bread and the wine that he didn't throw in the lamb. That would have been good, right? We have roasted lamb at the Lord's Supper. But in the infinite wisdom of God, he knew that our churches couldn't afford it. So anyway, we'll do the uh, cheap bread and the grape juice, right? So uh, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd. This is a quote from Zechariah 13, 8. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. We see that happening. When Christ is raised, whether it's at the tomb with Mary or whether it's the the ascension, uh, the great commission, Jesus gathers with his disciples in Galilee. I've always thought how interesting that is. You know, at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus went in the first part of his ministry after his temptation into Galilee. I preached a whole sermon on that. We're going through Matthew right now at our church. And Syria is mentioned. And uh, all of these countries where ISIS right now reigns is mentioned in Matthew chapter 4. Isn't that beautiful? These people were hearing the gospel and they were responding to the gospel. The beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry was centered in Capernaum. Capernaum meaning center, center of Galilee. Galilee was the city of the Gentiles. It was a region of Gentiles. The first place Jesus went to minister was not to Israel, but to the Gentiles. And just a word on that, because I know you're probably popping up scripture saying, oh, but he came to the Jews. Well, he came to the Jews so that the Jews would be a light to the nations. That's all throughout the Old Testament and the New. It was never this ethnocentric thing where Israel was just to be set apart for the sake of being set apart. They were always to be a witness. They were always to be proclaiming the good news to the nations. To the nations. Christ cared about the nations. And so he begins in Galilee and he ends in Galilee. That's just an interesting point, isn't it? He begins with the Gentiles and he ends with the Gentiles after Israel's rejected him. And so he tells them, you're going to fall away. And Peter says, no, I won't. But Jesus says, yes, you will. And he says, you'll deny me. Peter does deny him, and we know that. But that denial is a chance later for the Lord to extend grace. Let me go to the very final thing. Not only do we see that God has ordained him to be the suffering servant, and Mary has prepared him, and Judas has betrayed him, and the Passover has proclaimed him, and Peter's denial is part of this. And then finally, we see the Father has anointed him. The Father has anointed him. And the Father anoints him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. I've been to Gethsemane, or what they think is Gethsemane, and it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, it's right over the Kidron. Uh, 
Same path that David would have taken when he fled from Absalom. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? The very same path and the very same place David went when he fled from Absalom is the same path and the same place that Jesus went as he was preparing for his death. And uh, they go to this garden, uh, obviously uh, someone they knew. It was a quiet place, a place to pray. It was made up of olive trees uh, where olives would grow and be pressed for service. And Jesus went further into the garden to pray and said to them, stay here. Notice it says in verse 33, he was distressed and troubled. There was a great trouble. Now, he says his soul is sorrowful even unto death. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed. And he said, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Now, you ever wondered why Jesus would say that? Well, if we wonder that, there's a good answer. He should say that. What is the cup that he is about to drink? The cup is the wrath of God. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, when you read drinking the cup of the Lord, you're, you're reading, and I mean, I could give you about 12 Old Testament references. You're reading about the wrath of God being poured out. And so when Christ says, let this cup pass me by, the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath that is about to be poured out on Jesus. And because Christ is holy and he has never sinned and he is born in holiness and righteousness, naturally he would not want to face the wrath of God and he would not want to take on the sin of the world. That's not something that's inherent in his nature. And that's why he's asking this, because he's saying, surely if there were another way for the world to be saved, could there be another way? Father, could it be possible? You certainly could do it. But then we see the submission of Jesus at the very end of verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He submits to the Father's plan. And we know that the Father essentially says to him, there is no other way. Son, there is no other way for humanity to be saved and for me to remain just. You know, there's a beautiful passage of Scripture in Romans 3, verse 26. You know it, uh, where Paul says that God is both just and the justifier of those who are saved in Christ Jesus. You know, the cross is the answer to how God can be both just and and justifier. You know, God is just and He cannot sin. And as a just judge, He cannot wink at sin and overlook sin and sweep it under the rug. To do so would not make Him a just judge. It would make Him a corruptible judge. It would make Him a judge that could easily uh, be seen as bending the rules. But He doesn't do that, does He? He upholds justice. But how? How can God be just and at the same time declare us righteous? Be a justifier to people who are obviously guilty, who have transgressed the law of God, who have sinned, who have made a mockery of the standards of God. And the only answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ, by sacrificing Himself, God shows His ultimate love that He is both just and justifier all at one moment for those who put their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus. And so here in the garden, as Christ is praying, 
I don't want to face your fury. I don't want to face your wrath. I don't want to take upon the sin of the world. And I don't want to be abandoned by the Father. Christ submits and says, but Lord, if that's your will, I'll do it. This was God's anointing. It was God's moment to say, here in the garden, I'm setting you apart. I'm separating you for the task of the cross so that I can be both just and justifier for all those who will be saved. Well, how powerful this is, the preparation of our suffering servant, all that he did that week leading up to the cross so that you and I can be saved. It really makes John 3.16 stand out, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. Do you see his love here in this week of Mark 14? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you see how he gave? How he gave him in all these different instances, in all these different ways.